This is Scott Mouts, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? Hi, I'm Scott Mautz. I am an author, a keynote speaker, uh, entrepreneur of all sorts, I guess, and an adjunct prof- uh, professor at Indiana University. Wow, very cool. So you're, you're missing one other thing in there that I want to make sure that our, our, our guests find out. You also, um, we're celebrating your retirement. This is like a retirement party, sort of, um, and, <laughs> and, and a whole new career party, sort of, in this interview. You're also coming out of 20-plus years of experience, actually sort of doing what you talk about in your books and in your speeches um, at Procter & Gamble, correct? Yeah, that's that's right. I was uh, almost 23 years at P&G, uh, David. I was uh, blessed enough to be able to run some of um, some of their largest multi-billion dollar businesses so that I can be one of those guys that's actually walked a mile about what he's talking about. It's not just a theory. Uh, and, you know, while I was at P&G, you know, some people choose to coach, you know, soccer or swimming or something with their spare time or do something fun. I'm the nerd who decided, you know, I'm going to study uh, the things like others-oriented leadership and creating meaning in and at work uh, on my own time. Uh, so I kind of did that as a side job for a while before I just decided, well, it's a time It's time to make a, a full go of this and, um, and answer the entrepreneurial call. And I decided to do that about uh, – Two months ago, and so uh, a very difficult goodbye to a lot of friends and a great company at P&G, but here I am two months later. Welcome, world, to the world of uh, being an entrepreneur, and I'm loving every second of it. Oh, that that's awesome, and, and I hear you. I'm that nerd that even um, at, at working in ph- the pharmaceutical industry decides to start a podcast, and, th- and then that leads him to decide to switch and go back to grad school, <laughs> and then, then he works as a professor and writer and whatever, and still is like, ah, my hobby is uh, to run a <laughs> podcast, right? Um, so, so I hear, I hear you nerds, nerds unite. Um, so, and I mean, I think it's really cool. Long, long-term listeners to the podcast who will know that, um, I'm a big fan of a lot of the inner workings of, of P and G. They're actually one of the few companies that I think P and G and IDEO are the only two companies that I've written about in both of my books. Um, I'm not sure if P and G is going to make the cut for the third one or not. Maybe there'll be some awesome thing we talk about in the next, you know, half hour that that makes me go, yeah, definitely got to write about that. We'll see. But um, yeah, in the meantime, good. so I mean, I'm a huge admirer of the company, and so not only you know the the effect that you've had on that, but also the way it's shaped you. When you reached out to me, uh, looking at your body of work, but also your body of past work, it was like, yes, we should definitely talk. And I mean, I guess 
I guess we should start with um, meaning and this term, this term meaning. So the, you, you also have this awesome book uh, around, I mean, the book is called Make It Matter, right? But what matters is making it meaningful, right? And you have a rare experience, and then I'm going to assume, based on what I know about P&G, that you were one of the majority of people who were there who experienced some kind of meaning, some kind of um, decent uh, sense that what you do actually matters and affects people more than just making money, but it actually affects people's lives and makes them better through the products that you're offering, et cetera. I'm going to guess that. But if, since you're now retired, that's totally opposite, you can, <laughs> now is the time to admit it because they can't do anything to you. <laughs> I, I, I'm in a wonderful free zone, but your instincts are indeed uh, correct, David. I found the ability, um, you know, to find meaning and meaningfulness in, in my work there and create emotional connections and things that I would remember for the rest of my life. It's just a wonderful place to do that. And um, interestingly enough, I became so enamored with the concept of helping to motivate the troops in a manner that sustains through the creation of, of meaningful work along the way that um, it allowed me to even differentiate myself uh, within PNG for that. So it gave me a real chance to um, practice what I preach live and then, you know, at the same time, build and prepare for that second season of my life, which I've just entered, obviously. I mean, why, so wait, why do we have to worry about the troops? I mean, they're getting a paycheck, right? Shouldn't that be, shouldn't that be meaningful enough? You talk about having to do all this extra work. And I re- granted, that's a devil's advocate question. <laughs> but, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's a worthwhile one. We have this sense that, like, isn't, uh, isn't showing up to work and being offered something in exchange for your efforts enough? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, David. I you know I wish I could tell you that the data would support that that's true. You know, and what's interesting is um, I do a lot of keynote speaking, and you know I've been studying the art of creating meaning to motivate for almost two decades now. And when I do surveys, and I've done many surveys um, for for my business, invariably, and, the, and data broadly backs this up. If you were to ask the average manager or leader, hey, what do you think it is that fires up the troops? You know, what's going to sustain their motivation? Invariably, they'll tell you it's either pay or it's perks or it's promotions. And the truth is the data simply doesn't support that it's any one of those. You know, the problem with, you know, perks, I think we all kind of intuitively know this. The problem with perks is that they, they soon become expectations. And at that point, they have more power to let people down than to, to motivate them. You know, the problem with promotions is that the, the impact that you feel when you're promoted, it doesn't last very long. It, you know, before too long, before you know it, you look back and, the, and the, the very thing that you thought would make you happier, moving up that corporate ladder and getting more power, more responsibility, actually you find is one of the things that moves you farther away from the things that make you the happiest of all. It's called the promotion paradoxes. Social scientists will tell you. And so the last bastion of hope, you know, pay, well, certainly it must be pay. I mean, data simply does not support that it's pay. And in fact, I just came across a study that showed that regardless of whether you make $30,000 or $3 million a year, you're equally likely to be dissatisfied or satisfied at your job, depending on what you do and how you you look at your, your work. So I can talk to you for an hour David, about the data that I have that shows that, unfortunately, it's not just pay. That that becomes to mean a lot less to us over over time. And you know, the truth is, seventy percent of us are actually more on a search for meaning at work than we even are in life itself. Money ain't gonna fix that. 
Wait, wait. So let's be fair, though. If you're the one making three million dollars, not the one making thirty thousand, you <laughs> you certainly have a lot of things to distract yourself from the non-meaningful work, right? So, all right. I I want I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on that because I, I you you said a, a a fascinating phrase, the promotion paradox, and I think this is an interesting one. We should unpack this, though. I should say is distinct and different from uh, the Peter principle, which says you're going to get promoted to the level of your incompetence and you're just going to be bad at your job. This is different. This is that promotion that you're going for that thing that you think i mean when there it's weird about humans when there is a hierarchy our natural desire is to climb up it and yet that might not be what actually creates a meaningful job a meaningful work yeah that's really well said david and and um you know not to get caught up in all the fancy social science you can also you know if you 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 may have experienced or some of your listeners may have experienced this themselves where you know and i know for me for for me personally i experienced this several times in my work at procter and gamble where i'm like all right Something's nagging at me. There's, I've got to be spending so many hours away from my loved ones for some higher order reason. Maybe it's just I'm meant to get to that next level. Okay, so you work hard, you work hard, you, you spend way too many hours away from your loved ones. You get that promotion and then you find out within about three days, my gosh, this, this isn't it. I still have this nagging feeling that there's got to be something more to what really can sustain and motivate me over the long haul. And and a surprising number of people. Now, I'm not saying every single one of your listeners is going to say, you know, oh, yeah, that's me. But what I can tell you is on average, 75% of people will say they've experienced some essence of this promotion paradox, whereby they get to that next level, hoping it's going to produce more than it actually does for their fulfillment and their happiness. And they actually discover it has somehow moved them one step farther away from things that truly make them happy in life. So, I mean, how do we how do we combat this, right? Do we just, I mean, and, I've, and I know people who have done this and it turned out okay for them somewhat. They usually end up having to move on to a different company that actually sort of stepped down the hierarchy into a prior role. I feel like the weird thing about this is you basically, that's like, that's, that's option three and it's very hard. Option one is just, you know, jump off of, uh, off of the cliff of the hierarchy and try and land in a new company, one that is more meaningful. And then option two is probably take some deliberate steps to do this for yourself. And I think this is a good place to start from a leadership perspective. It's kind of like you, you can't really worry about creating meaning for the other people, the people that you lead, if you are experiencing this paradox to begin with. So how do we start even working on ourselves? Yeah, really great question. And boy, there's so many ways uh, to be able to do this. And you know, I'll, I'll just touch on a, on a few Um in, uh, in my book, uh, Make It Matter, a lot of this is about getting at exactly what you're talking about, David, that conundrum we realize we're in when we're like, man, what I signed up to do once upon a time, it really charged my engines. And now I'm kind of finding like, holy cow, something's something's missing and I got to get the mojo back. A couple of the places that you can turn for your listeners, you know, the theory is really around you can create meaning in your work to sustain motivation over time because those other things are all temporary and a couple of ways you can do that it first starts by really helping to reframe and reshape the work you're doing to help it matter even more to you some people will tell you you know hey look scott if you want to create meaning that you know that's awesome that's for doctors that's for nurses and policemen whose jobs are inherently meaningful you know i, I can't i'm just a whatever fill in the blank and you know what i would tell you is that I really disagree with that because I have talked to parking lot attendants. I actually did a set of focus groups with parking lot attendants and found out that 
even amongst something that seems like incredibly boring and mind-numbing as parking attendants, I discovered a couple of them that really felt like, look, my job and my purpose on this planet is to take something menial, like being a parking lot attendant, and bring an unexpected smile and a little bit of a lilt to someone's step during the day. And so they had reframed their own work to make it matter more and have more purpose. So one of the first things you can do to lift yourself out of that funk, if you don't want to depend on anybody else, is you start to think about, all right, what is the possible purpose behind the work I am doing? Why? What's the why behind my work, as Simon Sinek says? Why am I doing what I'm doing, first of all? And then second, what could I leave behind of tangible value? What do I want my legacy to be? And when you take a second, how many of us have a moment in our current jobs to say, this is what I want my legacy to be within the job that I'm in right now? It's not a common thing for us to think about. But if you can stop and think about, oh, my gosh, this is the legacy I want to leave behind. And I talk an awful lot of, you know, more about how you can do that. And you compare it with the, you know, the, the purpose that you have at that very job. You can start to breathe more meaning into the very work you do. That's one of the higher order things you can do. I'll offer up, you know, one more and, and by all means interrupt. But you can also just start to recommit to learning and growing. And what's so interesting, David, is, you know, People will tell you, if you look back on the times in your career when you were least satisfied, when you were the most discouraged and felt the most unfulfilled, there's a darn good time chance it was a time when you weren't learning and, when, and you weren't growing. When you were asking yourself quietly, you know, am I wasting my time here? And when you can recommit to that, really recommit to that and start to reinvest in it. So what's the first thing that always goes by the wayside when we're busy at work? Training or learning or investing in yourself. If you can recommit to that, I have reams of data that shows how meaningful that is to us as, a, as human beings and how fundamentally motivating that it really is. So thinking about your, your purpose, what you want your legacy to be, and recommitting to learning and growth are just two ways of, of many that I talk about um, in my book, Make It Matter. So uh, in, an interesting question for you then. Um, what was your sort of meaning? What was your why when you were working at Procter & Gamble? Because you know, this, this is a company that a lot of people admire because it's a huge company. It's got a huge marketing effort, makes some amazing products, and people know it's a great place to work. But the reality is like you're selling soap. You, know, you, you, you got my attention when you, when you were talking about you know, you're not a doctor. I'm like clearly, okay, this is dishwashing detergent and stuff. This isn't, this isn't doctor stuff. So how did you go through this yourself? What was your why when you were at P&G? Great question. And for me, and you know, what's really interesting, you know, brands, you bring it up, you know, brands can think about their own why, of course, you know, and um, Dawn dishwashing liquid, you know, you try to think of, we tried to think about ourselves as not just selling uh, soap, as you said, but, you know, we're, we're really providing uh, a handy, helpful kitchen solution that allows people to get back to the things they want to do in their life and spend more time in the heart of the home, the kitchen, doing stuff they love. We elevated the task that we were spending our time doing to feel even better about it. For me personally, in my personal life, you know, in, in, the, in the things I did at P&G, I soon figured out that while working through business problems and figuring out how I was going to get those next two share points was awesome and it kept me up at night, it actually wasn't what got me up in the morning. What really got me up in the morning, I soon learned about myself, was the passion and the, and the desire to help people become the best possible version of themselves that they could be. 
So I was, you know, blessed enough along the way while I was, you know, lucky to, to grow each of the businesses I, I ran at P&G. I'm more proud of my reputation for building a kind of grassroots culture that people would really fight to be a part of. And I say that with, with zero ego. I say that more to, to tell you that I surprised myself, David, that, you know, I went to P&G being in love with the numbers and the brands and selling more widgets than I did last year and discovered over time. My true passion was helping others become the best version of themselves. And, and for me, that was my own definition. And not, not everybody has to have that definition. But once I realized that, it imbued such a powerful sense of why I was coming to work every single day. And the, the ability to continue to do that drove me 10 times more than the increasing amounts of money that anybody would make as they rise up in a corporation. That surprised me about myself. Hmm. So, I mean, this begs a follow-up question too. As you're going, uh, you know, up and up in this organization, you obviously are taking on more responsibility, not just for products and numbers, but for other people, right? And and to make it meaningful for them or to convince them, right? I'd imagine you have those challenges. So you have your why, but you also have to help people find theirs. And again, and again, we're selling soap, right? So how did you do? How did you do that from a leadership standpoint? How did you help others find that meaning and find that that why that purpose? Yeah, that's really a really a great point, David. And and it starts with um, really taking the time. First, it starts with caring enough to figure that out for all the people that work for you. <clears throat> what makes them tick, and what's their unique blueprint, and what's really most important to them. There's, you know. You can't really fake it. You either care or you don't, right? It's it's kind of it's there's not there's no real gray zone to it. It's really either black or white. And if you really care, you're going to want to invest in your people and figure out like what uniquely makes them tick. And you know, over the years, I've spent a lot of time trying to develop a unique set of questions to help individual people figure out. Well, gosh, what could my why be? What could my legacy be? That's really most important to you know to me and that makes me tick and you know I talk an awful lot about that in the book but just to give you you know just a couple of samples one of the most powerful questions I simply ask it's not one that I created but that I know people use and find powerful is you know what would you try if you knew that you wouldn't fail and when I have that discussion with individual people that work for me they give me very interesting answers about you know well gosh when you put it that way I would try this and then well why would you try that well, because what I really love to do is this, and what's really important to me is that. And so you have that discussion with them, and you start to learn, holy cow, there's really a lot more to this than just selling soap. This person's really passionate about X or Y. And so you start to make that investment. And as you learn more and more you know, about your people, you start to learn, God, what are the kinds of things they would do for free? What are their core values and beliefs that are really in, you know, important to them? What are your people's superpowers? that work for you. Those all belie clues on what they're really put on this planet to do. And when you start to tap into that and spend the time with people to uniquely figure out what their unique imprint on the business and on others could be, you really start to unlock what really motivates people at the end of the day, which is the creation of a, of a work life that's meaningful to them individually. So I, you know, you hit on a really interesting point there, and it's one that that um, I I find myself making often, and sometimes feel like I'm the only person 
um, arguing for this, which is that so much leadership literature, and most of it's not informed by by the data, but so much leadership literature talks talks about casting a vision, right, or or getting buy in, or all of these things that are essentially how do leaders convince their people to believe the same thing as them. But I, I just I don't think that's true. When you look at a lot of great leaders, what they actually did is found a way to better verbalize or better put to words what people were already feeling. And, and we're talking about this same thing on an individual level. Your meaning for why you're doing the work is totally different from each of your individual peoples. And the skilled leader actually figures that out and figures out how to play to it. Yeah, that that's right. Part of the key is, as a leader, you can't just articulate your compelling vision that you think, you know, you're going to play it like a Pied Piper and the lemmings will come. It has to be a vision that are, that resonates with people's individual identities. It has to be something that they can uniquely understand and commit to. Uh, you know, in the book, I tell, uh, I tell the story and I'll, I'll hit this very, very quickly, um, of a man by the name of Mark Shapiro. At the time, he was the uh, president of the Cleveland Indians, and he was uh, a man featured in the movie Moneyball. Uh, if, if any of your uh, listeners have heard that, that was a baseball movie starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, I don't know, probably five, six years ago. And he plays the role of a general manager, and he got kind of uh, got uh, immortalized in that movie. And he told me a fascinating story about he got Sporting News Executive of the Year a couple years in a row, and the secret sauce for him was really – he didn't just like come out and articulate the Cleveland Indians mission and then leave it at that. He really worked on mission fit. And what I mean by that is he would go around the organization almost individual by individual in some senses and help draw a link between his vision for the organization and how it would fit with each person's unique personal identity and the unique role that they could play in delivering that vision. So it wasn't just vision for the masses. It was vision tailored on a one-to-one -one basis. And I know now not every leader can do that because some leaders have thousands in their organization. And I get that. It's more the philosophy and the principle of investing in the grassroots understanding of the troops and what's important to them and making sure your vision connects with that. Hmm. I think there's a, there's a lot there definitely to unpack, right? Making sure, but again, it comes out of this idea that it's not casting on your own your own idea, your own vision, it's making sure it actually resonates with people, which involves having to know what people want first and what their meaning is. So it begs an interesting follow-up question, though, and one that kind of came to my head. Um, I'd especially love to get your viewpoint from the practical standpoint. So you're doing this, right? And inevitably, not everyone is going to resonate with the mission of the organization or be able to find sort of their own way to derive purpose and meaning out of the job. So, so what do you do with those people when you ask them, like, if what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Who say, like, I'd go start a bakery downtown? Like, what do you do with the people that wh whom don't inherently resonate with the the why, with the mission, with the vision, with the purpose? Yeah, that's it. I'd go start a bakery downtown. That sounds good, David. I, are you trying to tell me something here? Um, you know, yeah. What I would say is, first of all, you're right. And sometimes, you know, a lot in what I talk about, you know, what I'm an expert on, David, is. I'm not that guy that says, and there's plenty of those people out there that say, okay, listen to me, find your purpose, quit, go into the mountains, and, and follow your dreams and your passions. I, I actually don't agree with that. I'm more the person that, first of all, there may come a time when that becomes necessary, where you realize, look, relative to what you're doing and what really makes you tick and really makes you happy, 
you, you can't get there from here based on where you are. There are unquestionably people like that. But what the data tells me and what I've seen through personal experience a lot more is people give up too fast on the job that they're in. So, yes, so if the, if the, the vision isn't doing it for you that, you're, that uh, the, the boss is creating, there's a lot of other avenues to craft and, and create meaning. We talked about um, how, trying to identify your legacy, trying to kind of recharge your batteries on learning and growing. A, a couple of other suggestions. Simply finding ways to ask for, if you're an employee, or grant, uh, uh, if you're a leader, autonomy is so incredibly and fundamentally important to people and their sense of meaning. Really figuring out a way to have more influence and say in what you're doing in your work. And if you're a leader, to grant that as fast as you humanly can and to do it in an intelligent way because it takes work to give away work, right? We can we can engage in autonomy in a very unintelligent fashion and make it feel more like we're dumping rather than efficiently delegating. So there's an art and a science to it, but really stretching and asking for more freedom and autonomy is is critically important trying your your absolute best to be free from corrosive behaviors if you're if you're a leader you know what's so fascinating david is i consult so many companies on how to build and craft a really strong sense of meaning in the in the organization and then i find out there's like two or three leaders that all the help is going right out the back door because their corrosive behaviors are eroding everything that they were trying to develop. So set aside the vision for a second, whether or not the people in the organization agreed with the vision, they're suffering with a couple of individual leaders that are just stinking up the joint. So being really alert of the types of corrosive behaviors that we can engage in, things like killing feelings of ownership for people that work for us. You know, I've been guilty of this before, where I'll move someone off of a project and reassign them to something else but for a very good business reason, not realizing the person wanted to see that through. That's a cr- tremendous sense of completion and meaning. You know, trying to avoid creating rework and waste, which is something that we so often, you know, do. Failing to invest in, re- you know, really listening and communicating well. Uh, trying to handle change management a little bit better than we do. There's a thousand things that we can do that can really screw up. Uh, the other side of the equation of meaning that we can avoid uh, as well if people aren't resonating with our vision. Okay, so this is really interesting to me because you said, you started talking about corrosive behaviors and then you said, I'm even guilty of it, which I think is interesting because in, I mean, in addition to looking internally to find meaning and purpose and all that sort of stuff, one internal search very few leaders I think do that's hugely beneficial is they don't know what their corrosive behaviors are. We, we often don't know what our own sort of negatives are. So what advice do you have for, for that? That's a really interesting leadership challenge, right? Is figuring out uh, essentially where you suck at dealing with your people and solving it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and that's so funny, David. I talk exactly about that. You know, the first thing is like an awareness campaign. And I, you know, I talk about this and make it matter of being aware of what social science teaches us about, you know, first of all, the most draining behaviors you can engage in. It, it starts with first, you got to be aware you have the problem, you know, and there's, you know, being indecisive uh, is just a major one. Being inconsistent, in what you're doing as a leader, doing a terrible job of managing, you know, change, listening poorly. You, you start with an awareness of what the top things are that we tend to engage in as a leader. First of all, figure out where you sit. But then, much like a, a lot of other, you know, leadership principles, David, it's about the mindset, right? And leading is a skill set and a mindset. And you have to have the mindset that you're really willing 
to ask your people what's not working for them. How can I get better? And so many leaders take this the wrong way and they think like if I ask for feedback, it's a sign that I think something could be wrong, that I'm weak, or that I don't actually want to hear the truth. And I can tell you, you know, David, you probably had many managers and leaders in your own life. The ones that really stick with you aren't necessarily the ones that have all the answers all the time. They're the ones that are vulnerable and the ones that say, like, I am positive. I'm not getting everything right. But you want to know what? I care about you. And I want you to be happy and fulfilled with your time in my shop. Help me get better. Help me understand the things that I am simply not doing right and executing well against. That's the first step is just driving awareness of it. And then you can attack the issues uh, issues one by one. I, I ha- Have you seen that as well in your life that um, it's very powerful when somebody asks you, what can they work on? Yeah, I mean, I... So one of the things I struggle with is that's that's like a good first step and it does it does exactly what you were saying is sort of making you aware if you're totally blind to it. But as you pointed out earlier, like it's a continual process of growth. And one of the things I find that's challenging is those those are sort of the low hanging fruit of what your issues are. So one <laughs> one of the questions I've I, I ask often, it's I mean it's it aligns with yours perfectly. It's a it's a spin off of it. Is I'll, I'll often come out of a meeting or come out of a situation and look to the person I know has a different function or a different ideology or a different perspective as me, and and I'll say I'll ask them to kind of describe what just happened back to me, and it's those incidents where I see something differently than them. You know, like <laughs> they might say how I behaved, and it's like that's not how I intended. You know, I didn't intend to be mean to that person or chew them out about something, but they're saying they're saying they perceived it that way. Oh, that that means that's potentially something I was blind to. Now, sometimes it's a misinterpretation, but like swallowing your ego and actually have a willingness to say how you interpret the world is not the way the world actually is, is a huge growth, a huge realization, right? Because then you can learn, all right, my perspective is wrong. The filters I see the world with are, are blinding me to certain things. Now I'm aware of it and I can work on it. That's so, so well said, David. And you get to that quicker And now, you know, here's the part of the uh, podcast where I'm going to offer a platitude, and I apologize in advance, but I I, I feel like I have to say this based on what you just said, because it's true. You get to that even quicker if you've really invested in a relationship that's founded in trust with the people that, that work for you. And the data is super, super clear on this, that, you know, the number one reason any one person will leave a a corporation, it was no different at Procter & Gamble than any place else. Number one reason is poor relationship with their manager. Number one reason a relationship is coded as poor with their manager is a lack of trust. So if you can really invest in a trusting relationship with those that work for you and the people that you work for, really make it a priority, you get to those blind spots so much quicker because you have that bedrock of, of trust and you feel okay bringing it up. And, you know, I got to tell you, David, one of the most difficult things I found in my corporate career was giving my boss feedback. And that's mm. even when we had a reasonable level of trust, um, you know, in the relationship. It was, you know, for the, the ones that I trusted the most, it was much, much easier. So I'm not trying to tell anybody that that's easy to do, either to ask for it or to give it. But it's something that, you, you know, trust you have to really invest in to make that an easier process. It's funny, the idea of giving your boss feedback. It's sort of like, wait a minute, is this a trick question? Are you you're just trying to find a reason to fire me, et cetera? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's funny and it's ironic. I mean, I was literally, um, I was in a conversation just yesterday talking about 
um, some of the ideas from Under New Management, which is seen as this book of workplace practices and policies and, and leadership practices and policies. And so yeah. many of them don't work unless there's trust, right? And it's the same thing here. So much of that relationship doesn't work unless there's already a, a trust there. And if there's not, if it's perceived trust, but it's not actually there, um, or if it's perceived as a lack of trust because no one trusts each other, you have way bigger problems than just providing your people with more than uh, more than a paycheck or even meaning, right? Well, you got the, <laughs> you got that right. There's, there, there's nothing you can do to, right? You can't. And you know what the, the, the tough thing about it is, David, is, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair. But it only takes one occasion to damage a relationship you've been working on for years. It, it doesn't seem fair. You have to pack so much mud up against the levee in the levee of trust. All it takes is removing one sandbag and the whole thing can cave in. And it isn't fair, but it's true. So you have to hold it in the highest regards and hold that trust building activity in your life sacred. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, the book, again, is is Make It Matter. It's a fascinating look at the role of, of meaning uh, in not just leaders' lives, but in your own lives, how you can create that and how it serves to sort of motivate um, the people to work better. We've talked a lot about you, Scott, and your experience, but I want to actually dive a little bit deeper. We ask all of our guests uh, the same five questions at the end designed to let us get to know you um, and your insights more. The first yeah. one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, um, this one might be a little bit odd, but I receive, you know, one of the things that's very important to me in, in, uh, in my life, David, is, if you haven't figured that out by now, is the servitude that I bring to others uh, in the time I'm giving on this planet. And that was always very important to me at P&G and in the business world. And I got great advice on, I used to really struggle with, you know, helping give people that work for me accurate, useful feedback that would grow them and make a difference in their lives. Like, you know, I didn't want to just give feedback. I wanted to give once in a lifetime feedback that you would remember five years later, which is a true gift. And so few can give that. And I was terrible at it. And I had a, uh, one of my first bosses gave me wonderful advice that said, you know, when I was having a hard time pinpointing what it was I wanted someone to work on, I would just fill in the blanks and stumble through what I thought it was. And it was never really accurate. And he told me, look, let me give you this advice. Most often, our opportunities lie in the shadow of our strengths. And what he meant by that, you know, he gave me a few examples. So, for example, you know, you might have someone that's working for you that is a stunning visionary. And on the other side of the equation, in the shadow of that strength, they're terrible at follow through and execution. You might have somebody who's a fantastic collaborator and you're trying to put your finger on what they need to work on. And you realize, well, in the shadow of that strength of being a collaborator, they're so eager to get everybody's you know, opinion heard, they don't make a decision fast enough. And so I found that about 80% of the time, that's the place to start. You figure out what they're good at and you look in the shadow of that and it helps you pinpoint what they may need to work on. I've always found that to be very powerful advice. Oh, no, that is really solid. So, you know, it's interesting. You, you said at the top of the show that you had just uh, retired about two months ago Um from PNG, the interesting thing is the next question: What's an ideal work day look like for you? I'd imagine there was a PNG answer, and now there's a new answer. Yeah, there's a new answer. I'll go with the the more modern. Uh, you know, for me, um, uh, like you, David, you know, I do a, a keynote speaking, and I'm also a, an author, um, and I'm also a teacher. So we share those three things in common. Um, and I'm, I'm also going to be launching an online education company where I take my content and I make it available in video courses. So a perfect day for me is. 
I, I now have a seven second commute, which is wonderful, uh, to my home office. And I'll cruise in in the morning and I'll, I will block out time and I will write intensively, either work on one of the books that I'm working on. I also have a column for Inca Magazine, uh, much like I, I know you write for them as well, David. I will um, carve out time and just, you know, purely write from, you know, seven in the morning through uh, lunchtime. Uh, then I will work on um, prepping for a keynote that I might have coming up that week. Um, get some notes ready for some classes I might be teaching at Indiana University. Um, start, you know, do a little bit of work in the afternoon on, on video courses that I'm uh, trying to prepare to sell online. And uh, then my daughter will come home. And then uh, the family time, you know, the, the, I'm all theirs after that. Um, and so to me, that's a, that's an ideal day, especially the seven second commute part. Yeah, no, that's pretty solid. We we moved into a new place um, maybe about six months ago, and uh, it includes a studio uh, for podcasting office little area, which I hadn't had since my two-year-old arrived in our house and stole my <laughs> office. Um, and it, it, it's quite an amazing commute. It really is. Uh, what are you What well, are you reading right now? Um, let's see. I'm actually I'm actually rereading a classic, um, Jim Collins' uh, "Good to Great." Um, one of the things I talk about, um, in one of my keynotes is just the power of, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. Do do you know anyone that wakes up in the morning, David, and says, man, I can't wait to not be great at work today. I want to really suck today. That's my goal. No, I I mean, well, let's be fair. There are a few of them, but that's just because HR hasn't found them for poor performance yet and, and shared them with the competition. (laughs) Exactly right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But in general, you know, we find that you know, people want to be great. And what's really interesting um, is I find if you can sit down and spell out, you know, with your people and have a, an agreement, look, this is what good looks like on, you know, uh, leadership, on strategic leadership or visioning. This is what great looks like. And you really spell out the differences. It is so powerful. There's people, the light will come on and they'll be like, oh, my gosh, I thought I really sucked at that. And you're telling me I was great. My definition of great is different than yours. Or. I thought I was great, and you tell me I'm not even meeting expectations on this performance vector. It's very, very powerful. And so I, you know, I was having such good experience with that. I decided to go back and read the classic uh, "Good to Great" to just uh, rekindle my fire um, for that tool that I use with folks. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, what do you believe that most people don't? What do I? Uh, I believe I'll have another beer. Um, it's almost happy hour. No, I'm kidding. Um, let's see. I believe. I don't think. Uh, I think most people also believe that. So that one doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Right. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Well, here's here's a couple of things. I'll give you a couple very quickly. I think. Um, I don't know if most people believe this or not, David. You you might be able to argue. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I really do believe that. Um, you know, we're we're here to serve in some capacity greater than ourselves, and I don't mean that necessarily with any religious undertone. I just mean that as a human being. I really do believe that we're here. To do to, to serve in a capacity to our fellow human beings. That's one thing I believe. Uh, I don't know if everybody does. I believe that Amazon is going to rule the world. Uh, I think they are an incredible company. They're doing everything right. I just read an article the other day that they now have uh, the patent for floating warehouses, uh, which would essentially be something. Think like uh, you know you're at a, a football game, uh, at, you know whatever. Uh, uh, I don't know, let's say a, a college football game, and uh, you decide you just got to have your Pokemon Go plush towel, right, you know, plush towel right there. There'd be a blimp floating over the stadium. You can place your order to that floating warehouse, and they'll have a drone bring you your plush toy down to a designated pick drop-off zone outside the stadium. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. 
And uh, they just impressed me. So I think they are going to rule the world. And uh, the third thing I believe that I don't know that everybody believes is I believe you should support uh, local businesses. Uh, I love chains and the efficiency they bring, but I'm a big fan of trying to help your uh, your local bookstore and your local restaurant survive. I, I think the Amazon one may be the most <laughs> unique answer to that question that we've ever received. So thank you for that. <laughs> Um, so the title of the show, as you know, is Radio Free Leader. Uh, our final question is, in your view, what makes someone a leader? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, um, I'm sure a lot of people tell you this, David. I don't really think it's by choice. I, I think people, you know, true leaders, they can't help but lead because others want to follow. And those people have a certain genetic makeup. You know, I believe it's, you know, four things. I believe it's people that have a passion for potential, their own potential the potential of the business they're running and the potential of people that work for them and they'll do anything to advance all of those. You know, I believe it's people that admit a very caring undercurrent that, you know, they're approachable and they care about you as a human being. Um, you know, I believe leaders possess the framing finesse to help you understand why the vision of the company is important to you and why it should matter to you, you know, frankly. And I believe that great leaders create an atmosphere of relaxed intensity. And I was often accused of that, of being a very relaxed guy. I love to joke around, but don't kid yourself. When push comes to shove, I want to win as much as anybody else. But we're going to do it in my way that's fun, creative, and puts people first. So to me, that's what uh, leadership is all about. Relaxed intensity. I love that term. You got the, it. the book again is Make It Matter, How Managers and Leaders Can Motivate by Creating Meeting Scott Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you for the opportunity, David, and thanks to all your listeners out there.